Well, good morning, and again, uh, welcome to Downtown Presbyterian Church. We're really glad that you're here with us. My name is Jonathan Davis. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning for our sermon, we're going to be continuing uh, the series we've been in in the book of Hebrews. And we'll be looking specifically at chapter 13, verses 9 through 16. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's printed for you in the bulletin. Uh, well, growing up, I had a very short-lived uh, basketball career. I played on and off through grade school through my freshman year. Uh, by the way, huge shout-out to all of our DPC basketball teams. Uh, great job this season. I saw some massive trophies. Um, that was a lot of fun. I hope you all enjoyed that. Um, I played through my freshman year, and during that year I had a coach named Tom Hip. And Coach Hip was a uh, wonderful basketball coach, wonderful man. I still think about a lot of the things that he taught us that year. Uh, one of the things he taught us was the importance of the daily dozen. Uh, the daily dozen were 12 shots that you would start every practice and every game. And any time you were playing, you would start with a daily dozen. And these were 12 of the most fundamental primary shots that you take in the game of basketball. And his thinking behind this was, uh, if we can get these kids to get the basics down, the main things of basketball down, then the game will go well for them. And if you wanted to see Coach Hip get upset, go out during a game and try to do like some fancy trick shot, and he would lose his mind. Uh, miss one of the daily dozen shots, and he would lose his mind. What was he doing? He was trying to get us uh, so comfortable and sure of the basics of the game that our game would follow, that we would play well because of that. In our passage this morning, the writer of Hebrews is telling his audience to keep the main thing the main thing. And throughout Hebrews, he, he has hit this main theme over and over again. Uh, it's the fact that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is better than all the old sacrifices that they were accustomed to. Uh, all the old rituals they performed, Jesus was better than all of it. And we're in chapter 13 this morning, which is the last chapter. And the writer's in the middle of giving some very practical final applications to his audience, which we began to look at some of those last week. In the midst of this, he's going to tell them to keep the main thing the main thing. Let me read our passage for us. This is Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask him to be with us this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to be together and consider it. Lord, you alone know the things on our hearts and minds this morning. We pray that in the midst of our busyness and, and lives and relationships and whatever's on our mind, that you would meet us and speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
This concept of, of keeping the main thing the main thing is a quote that's attributed to an author, a late author named Stephen Covey, who uh, wrote a number of management and business books, and uh, most popular would be Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the idea behind this idea of keeping the main thing the main thing is that uh, whether it's your personal priorities, you'll stay focused on whatever your mission is, whatever the main thing for you is. Uh, if it's your business, you'll stay true to the main thing that your business does. A lot of times that's driven by a mission statement. Uh, that is, you're going to find your sweet spot, that thing you do well, the main thing that drives your company, and you won't deviate from that, but you'll be committed to that. And every decision you make as an organization will flow from this idea of keeping the main thing the main thing. Uh, maybe the most famous example of companies that do this well is the furniture company IKEA. Uh, they are known for keeping the main thing central. Uh, a lot of times they're used as, uh, as case studies in business school and things like that. But listen to their, um, their, their mission statement. It, it says this, Our business idea is to offer a wide range of well-designed, functional home furnishing products at prices so low that as many people as possible will be able to afford them. Uh, if you've ever shopped at an Ikea or ordered from Ikea, you know that they are very good at staying true to this. Um, from the way that their stores are set up to the fact that they, when they send you the furniture, you actually have to put it together because they don't want to do it themselves to take up the time and resources and space to do that. So they send it to you to do that. But all the decisions Ikea makes are through this grid of this mission statement. Uh, they're never going to be known as a, as a big-time, high-end retailer of furniture because that's not their main thing. And it was never intended to be. What is the main thing of Christianity? Uh, what is the center of it all? What, what's the grid through which we understand the scriptures? This is what the writer of Hebrews has been addressing over and over again throughout this letter. And he's categorically gone through a lot of the Old Testament rites and ceremonies. And he said time and again, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. So here's how I want to think about this this morning. Let's ask three questions. First, what is the main thing? Secondly, what steers us off course? And third, how do we know that we're on course? So first, what is the main thing? Look back at the passage starting in verse 9. He says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Okay, so the main thing that the writer is calling their attention back to is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the main thing. And he has said this multiple times throughout this letter. In his final section, he goes there again, saying Christ is better. Christ's sacrifice is final. Jesus is the main thing. All right, what does he tell us about this main thing specifically? What do we know about the sacrifice of Christ? The first thing he tells us is that it's by grace. It's by grace. Look again at verse 9. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. 
This means that Jesus' rescue of us, uh, his coming and sacrificing himself for our sin, it comes to us by grace, not by anything we've earned, not by anything we've done, or not by anything that we will do. It's by grace. And it may seem like we beat that drum a lot from up here, and I hope it seems that way, because we do. And that's intentional, because that is so crucial for us to grasp at the heart of Christianity, and it is so against our nature to really embrace this. And it was against the nature of this original audience, too. If you'll notice, the writer, he contrasts this grace with the Hebrews trying to grow in their faith by eating these sacred foods. Which we'll talk more about what that meant in a moment. But this difference is key. The grace of God is unmerited. We don't do anything to earn it compared to this doing of eating these sacred foods that they had. So this main thing, the sacrifice of Christ, it comes to us by grace. What else does he say? He says it's aimed at our hearts. It's aimed at our hearts. It's easy to breeze past this, but look at verse 9. He says it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Again, in contrast to these diverse and strange teachings that we're dealing with this external act, this thing you do with this sacrificial food, the writer is saying that the work of Jesus is applied to our hearts. And this is important to see. Maybe you're here um, considering Christianity. You wouldn't, at this point, consider yourself a follower of Christ. This is an important distinction to make that Christianity is not primarily about adding a new set of behaviors to your life or taking away certain behaviors. Christianity is primarily about your heart and your heart being changed, your heart being made alive again to this grace. It's about this internal, spiritual change that happens. And he's saying the food's not going to do the trick that they were after. It's grace strengthening your heart. Comes to us by grace. It's aimed at our hearts. What else does he say about this main thing? He says that it's final. It's final. Look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He's saying now that we have a new and better altar. He's talking about the cross of Christ, where this final sacrifice was made. In verse 10, he's saying that all those priests who remain committed to that old way, of that old way of sacrifice, they have no right to come to this altar of Christ, because all those previous things were pointing forward to their fulfillment in the cross of Christ, this one final sacrifice. He says that Jesus actually, instead of being sacrificed where the other things were, he went outside, outside of the gate where all the unclean things go, and he was sacrificed there. And what happened? What did this sacrifice of Jesus outside the gate accomplish? Verse 12 says he suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He's saying this is how we get clean. A major question and theme throughout Hebrews is the fact that our sin makes us dirty and we need to be cleaned. So how do we get cleaned? We get cleaned by Jesus and therefore we can draw near to him. 
Time and time again, that's been talked about in the letter to the Hebrews. And he is saying that our sin makes us unclean, but Jesus goes to where the unclean things are, takes our uncleanliness upon himself, pays for it in full, and therefore makes us clean in that process. And this is final. It is the final sacrifice. Uh, my wife Erin and I have been uh, watching these documentaries on Netflix. They're, uh, they sort of cover different decades. I think they're originally done by CNN. And they go back at least to the 70s, for 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And essentially each episode will cover an important um, cultural factor of each decade. And there was a really fascinating one we watched recently on the 2000s. And it talked about how the way TV shows were made changed dramatically during that decade. TV moved from primarily being short-form narratives where you could watch one episode of any given show and it was sort of closed the whole loop of the story within that one episode. So you didn't need to see a prior episode, you didn't need to watch the one coming after it, but it was all contained in that episode. It changed from that short-form narrative to longer-form narrative where the series, uh, the, the episodes rather, would build on themselves. And so it would build over the course of a season and not just over the season, but over multiple seasons. And so you got a lot of really great TV out of this. I mean, things like Friday Night Lights and Lost and things like that. One of the things they said, though, about this big change in TV was that the series finale became really, really important. Because if people spent literally years watching a show and building and building and building, that finale better be good. And they actually said that even if it was a really good show and the finale didn't live up to all the hype, people would remember the whole series as not being any good. But if the finale was good, they would, would remember the whole thing as being a good show. Y'all, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is the finale of all the sacrifices before it. Everything before it was leading up to it, was building to it. And when Jesus shed his blood and died on the cross, it was the final and better sacrifice. This means that there is nothing more needed to cleanse you from your sin and to draw near to God. It is done. This main thing, the sacrifice of Christ, it's by grace, it's aimed at the heart, and it is final. And the writer was telling these Christians to stay focused on this. Stay focused on the main thing, the sacrifice of Jesus. All right, if that's the main thing, how do we lose sight of it? What steers us off course? My two oldest daughters in the past few years have learned to, to ride bikes without training wheels. And uh, so uh, my neighbors have seen me out front on our street, um, sort of awkwardly hunched over, grabbing the back of their seat, running behind them, trying to hold them up and keep them upright. And the whole time they were learning to ride their bikes, I would tell them time and again, look at where you want to go. Don't look down at your handlebars. Don't look down at your pedals. Don't look at the parked car on the side of the street. Don't look at the curb. Look straight ahead where you want to go, and the bike will go there. If you get distracted from that and start looking down or looking at something else, you're going to veer off course and crash. All right, if you're a Christian and you take your eyes off Jesus, you will steer off course. That's what was happening to these readers. All right, what, what was steering the Hebrews off course? Look at verse 9 again. It, it mentions these diverse and strange teachings. The writer was likely referring back 
to certain sacrifices in the Old Testament where the worshiper would actually eat a portion of the animal that was being sacrificed. And these readers were actually being taught that, hey, these special foods were actually the key to growth. Focus more on these foods and you'll really start growing in your faith. And commentators aren't exactly 100% sure as to the details of these strange and diverse teachings involving this food. But the warning here is that this focus is steering them off course. Remember the context of this letter. We've mentioned this a few times, that this is being written to Christians with a Jewish background, and they're considering turning away from Jesus and going back to all the old ways that they're familiar with. And here he is saying to them, those old ways we're now going to refer to those as strange and diverse teachings. Which that would have been shocking to them. Because what he's doing is he's drawing a line in the sand. And he's saying, if you reject Jesus and the sacrifice that's offered, you're rejecting him and the salvation that is yours in him alone. He's telling them, there are no external rituals. There are no add-ons that are the key to growth. Grace is the key to growth. This is not something unique to this original audience, is it? What about us? What steers us off course? Uh, Think about in your own life. Uh, If Jesus is the one right in front of you, what are the things off to the side for you that you are tempted to veer off course to focus on and make the main thing in your life? Uh, We are all tempted in some way to find that thing that's that's really going to finally help us grow or that's going to really liven up our faith and be the fresh new focus that we're really going to center our lives around. And and a lot of times it can be something that's really good. Um, It it might be something that's theological, maybe some important doctrine, even a really, you know, important biblical doctrine. But if it isn't the main thing in the scriptures, when we begin to focus on it as the main thing, it steers us off course. We begin interpreting the rest of the Bible in light of something that isn't the main thing. And this can be true for individuals. This can be true for churches. And this is why things like creeds and statements of faith and catechisms are so important. Because they keep us dialed in and focused on the main thing. They keep us from veering off course. If anything other than Jesus takes center stage and becomes that main thing, you've got to watch out. It doesn't have to be something theological. Maybe it's something political. Again, lots of really important political issues to be involved in and passionate about and engaged with. Uh, But when they take up more space in our heart and in our lives than Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us, we begin interpreting all things in light of one particular issue, we go off course. Uh, Maybe it's not theological or political. Maybe it's just in a category that we could call Jesus plus, where, where it's uh, a whole range of Jesus plus something becomes the main thing. It's partly Jesus, but it's also kind of this other stuff we want to lump in with him too. Um, maybe it's Jesus plus better health, um, really getting keyed in on the new diet or, or workout routine as the key to life. Uh, maybe it's Jesus plus uh, getting our kids straightened out having well-behaved kids. Maybe it's Jesus plus finding a spouse. Or Jesus plus fixing my spouse. Maybe it's Jesus plus the perfect home. 
Jesus plus a bigger bank account. If we can just get a bigger bank account, then things are going to be okay. Jesus plus my version of the American dream. Fill in the blank. For the Hebrews, it was these sacrificial foods that were being peddled to them as this key to growth, as the main thing. I wonder what it is for you. And you know, all these, a lot of these things that we listed are not bad things in and of themselves. They're just things that weren't meant to be the main thing. But they're so tempting. It is so hard to keep Jesus as central because these other things feel more immediate. They feel more real. They feel tangible. We can touch and see them. They're external. They feel more controllable. And so we grasp onto these things. But the writer's saying, look at verse 9. He's saying they don't work. They don't benefit those who are devoted to them. This is the litmus test. It, think back to a time in your life where something other than Jesus was the main thing. And maybe that's right now for you. Uh, what is the fruit that that's bearing in your life? There might be some kind of short-term boost, but, but the long-term prospect is not good. Our hearts are strengthened by grace when we are near to Jesus and he is the main thing. All right, so Jesus is the main thing. It's easy to get steered off course. All right, what does it look like if we're on course, if Jesus remains the main thing for us? How do we know that we're on course? During the summers growing up, my family would go out west to the Rocky Mountains to Colorado to go hiking. And um, if you start a trail, uh, usually it's where there still are lots of trees around. And so there are signs marking the trail. And there's a well-worn path weaving in between the trees. So it's really obvious where you need to go. But when you get up at higher elevations, trees and vegetation stop growing. You're above the tree line. The terrain gets really barren and really rocky. And so to mark the trail up there, they use what are called rock cairns. Rock cairns are just big piles of rocks that stand out, and they're really obvious. And so to make sure that you're on the right path, you look for the rock cairns. And as soon as you hit one rock cairn, you start looking for the next. And you follow that path, and that will ensure that you stay on the trail. How do we know we're on the right path in our faith? How do we know we're staying on course? The writer actually go back, goes back at the end of our passage and gives us a few of these practical markers that are going to be present in our lives if Christ is the main thing. And he names three in particular. The first is this, that when we focus on Christ, we will suffer with Christ. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. He says, we will go and bear the reproach that Jesus endured. What does he mean when he says that? What did it mean for the original audience? Uh, one of the commentators highlighted the fact that for these Jewish Christians, for them to go all in and make Jesus the main thing and really believe that his sacrifice was it, it would likely mean losing access to the temple. It would mean they wouldn't be welcomed in their synagogue and probably their family would disown them. So the cost was high. They would experience some of that rejection that Jesus himself experienced. What about for us? How do we bear the reproach that he endured? How do we participate in some of that rejection that Jesus experienced? This is a hard thing to swallow. This idea of suffering with Christ, though, it's, it's actually throughout the New Testament. Um, Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul refers to sharing in Christ's sufferings. Um, Christianity is not 
um, sort of a nice thing to add on to an already good life. I mean, it totally reworks everything for you. And it's a call to take up your cross and follow Jesus and to suffer with him. And it means that we're going to be called to say no to the things of this life and this world. And to say no to those things will feel like death. There's going to be a cost associated with it. It does not feel good to have to say no right now to the stuff of this world. Within that, we get a little taste of the rejection that Christ experienced, bearing the reproach that he endured. For some of y'all, it may mean actually being rejected from your family if you grew up uh, with a different religion or no Christianity at all. When that gospel takes root in your heart and it really begins to affect how you live, you can expect rejection from some to follow that. Christ was rejected and suffered. And following him means that we should expect likewise. All right, why would anyone do that? How can anyone do that? Look at verse 14. This is possible because we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. He's saying that this world, uh, acceptance by peers in this world now, uh, the stuff, the indulgences that this world has to offer, that, that this is not our home. We're looking to the next home. Eternity in the city of God with Jesus and his people forever. We live for that city, not for this city. Kids, think about it this way. Uh, maybe you've had a moment where you get an allowance, uh, maybe every week or every month, you do a lot of chores around the house, and there's a, like a big expensive toy or something that you want to buy. But it's going to mean you're going to have to save up for a while to do it. I can remember the first big thing that I bought, uh, we called it a boombox. Uh, many of y'all won't know what a boombox is, but it was Casio, single CD player, and it had the tape deck on it, just in case you still had tapes to play. But I was so excited to get it, I saved and saved and saved, and finally I was able to purchase it. But that's a hard process, right? Because along the way, you have to keep in mind this great thing you want to purchase, and each week when you get your allowance, you have to say no to buying all those other little things. And it's hard to say no to those little things, because those little things seem pretty neat. But you save and save and save, and eventually you get to buy that big thing, and it's totally worth it. It was totally worth the wait, right? When we focus on Christ, when we suffer with Christ, we are bearing the reproach that he endured. We are suffering with him. And this is only possible when we have that big thing, the city of God in view, that we can say no to the stuff of this world. So he says that when we focus on Christ, we're going to suffer with him. He says, he goes on to say that when we focus on Christ, we're going to give full allegiance to him. Look at verse 15. He says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. All right, so he's using the language of sacrifice here. Uh, but instead of animal sacrifices like they were used to, now he says, offer the sacrifice of praise. What does he mean by that? Well, he certainly means like actually praising God and singing to him like we do when we gather together. It's that, but it's so much more than that. Uh, the wording here has in view this full, all-of-life allegiance where everything is given over to the Lord, where he's acknowledged in all of life, where we surrender everything to him. Because when Christ take, takes hold of our hearts and is the main thing, it affects not just church life, but it flows over into family life and work life and our dating life 
in how we engage in sports, how we engage in life in our neighborhood. Nothing is sequestered off from Jesus, but He's acknowledged in all of these areas and has our full allegiance. So these are some of the markers. We suffer with Christ. We give full allegiance to Him. And the third thing He says is that when we focus on Christ, we become good neighbors. Look at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This overflow of our nearness to Christ, it flows over into our relationships. And again, he uses the sacrifice language here. He says these sacrifices, these are pleasing to God, that we do good to those around us, that we share what we have. This idea of sharing what we have, this is getting at our possessions, our money, our stuff. Uh, this is describing being a good neighbor. Uh, and I doubt that, that uh, many would disagree that that's a good idea. Uh, but we tend to think about being a good neighbor in a very general sort of way. Uh, and I heard about a year ago someone make this very tangible and specific for me. It was very helpful. He said, go to your front door, open the front door of your house, stand on the front step, and face outward. Look to your left, look diagonally to your left, look in front of you, Look diagonally to your right and look immediately to your right. Uh, this would work in most traditional neighborhoods. If you live in an apartment or on a farm, that might be a little bit different. But roughly five individuals or families are surrounding you. These are real people with real struggles and real needs and real issues. What would it look like for you and these five families, these five people, for you to actually do good to them and to share what you have with them. Uh, meals, yard work, uh, giving them a ride somewhere, uh, just being a friend to them, going beyond mailbox conversation with them. What would that look like for you? And imagine, uh, maybe not, if we didn't, didn't even do it for all five, just one or two of them. Imagine if, if some of our 40-plus community groups throughout the city began thinking this way, individually and collectively, about their neighbors. Think about us as a church, us as a community, how, that, how much good would be done, how much we'd be sharing with those around us. I, what is the main thing? Jesus and his sacrifice is the main thing. What steers us off course? taking our eyes off of Jesus and making something else the most central thing. How do we know if we're on course? We suffer with Christ. We give our full allegiance to Him and we become good neighbors. All right, what if you're here this morning and, and you sort of look up and you realize, I'm off course. I'm lost. There are no trail markers around saying that I have made Christ the main thing. What do I do? Where do I go from here? If this is you, welcome. You are in good company. And you simply turn to Him and embrace Jesus Christ as the most central, most important thing. You acknowledge the ways you've gone off course and embrace Him as the main thing. Uh, the grace that is spoken of in this passage, this is grace for people who go off course and get lost. And Jesus is so kind to call out to us and invite us back to himself. 
And he is inviting you to himself this morning. So let me pray that we would all embrace him as the main thing. Father, thank you that while we were lost in our sin and disobedience and rebellion against you, when we had veered off course, you came after us to find us. To be the final sacrifice, to pay for our sin, to pay for all the ways that we have gone astray. Thank you for this good news. Lord, I pray that this would be the main thing for us. That this would overflow into our lives. That we'd be equipped to share in the sufferings of Christ. And to give all of our lives, to give full allegiance to you. And to be good neighbors to those you put into our lives. We pray that you give us the strength and the joy to do that this week. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.